crossroads and the future is completely within our control. We're living through the single biggest culture shift of our time. This is the time for us to just really take charge. That's what revolutions do. They enable the impossible. You're listening to The Growth Show with Mike Volpe. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening in to another episode of The Growth Show. I'm Brian Halligan, CEO of HubSpot, pinch hitting from Mike Volpe today. And I'm interviewing someone very special. His name's Daniel Coe. And you may not have heard of him, but you will in the future. He's got a very interesting background. Harvard undergrad, HBS, uh, Harvard Business School. Uh, he was chief of staff for Ariana Huffington, fascinating. Currently chief of staff for the mayor of Boston, kind of fascinating. And he's one of the Forbes 30 under 30. Uh, so he's quite an interesting fellow. Um, you know, Dan, my, I guess my first question is, you got a very interesting background. Why, after going to Harvard Business School, did you decide, you probably could have done anything, <laughs> to go to work for the mayor of Boston as chief of staff? Well, I got, I got really, really lucky uh, in this whole process. I knew uh, from early on, first of all, my father was uh, very politically active in Massachusetts. He was the commissioner of public health in Massachusetts. And so uh, when I was younger, my first public service experience was uh, as an eight or nine-year-old doing sting operations for cigarettes, uh, meaning that I would be in a cruiser, unmarked cruiser, with a police officer, and they'd send me into different convenience stores who had violated the underage selling uh, and I'd go in there and try to buy cigarettes. Uh, it was kind of a cool little intro into public service. Not all of it is as sexy as that, I suppose, but right. got me really inspired to try to figure out ways to make a difference. And uh, so when I went to business school, um, I had previously worked for Senator Ted Kennedy a number of summers in his office, saw his ability to affect change in the state. Uh, and the business school has a fellowship where they will send you to the mayor's office as an advisor uh, to then Mayor Tom Menino, and they'll pay the salary. Uh, so I really enjoyed that. Had a great experience, wanted to do something in the private sector, really enjoyed uh, working for Ariana, but when the call came to work as chief of staff, I couldn't turn it down. Got it. Uh, let me ask sort of the $1,000 question. Uh, <laughs> when you're an old man like me, 47-year-old, when you're grown up like me, what do you want to be when you're grown up like me? We'll see. You know, I, I, I still don't know. Um, a lot of people ask me all the time, you're going to stay in public sector. Do you want to go back to the private sector? I still haven't figured it all out yet. I think we have to get through the first First of all, we gotta get through the snow first, but after sure, that, sure, sure. Uh, figure out uh, how we get through the next three years and how we do it to the best uh, of serving the constituents as we possibly can. Um, but in the future, you know, I really love public service. It's in my blood. It's something I love doing. So I could definitely see myself staying in this sector for and a long time. And can you see yourself moving from behind the scenes to in front of the scenes and shaking hands and running for office? Somewhere? Well, the thing is, you know, a lot of people, especially those people who run for office, try to say, oh, I've never thought of myself in those. Yes. That's not true, in my opinion. Yeah. I just want to be honest with people. Um, I've always thought of public service as a really exciting opportunity, but I don't know when and if that will come. And it will really have to be a good uh, aligning of stars for that to happen. Yep. Yeah. Nice dodge. Um, <laughs> so your chief of staff, the mayor of Boston. Now I'm obsessed with this show, uh, West, the West Wing. I love the yeah. West Wing. I, yeah. I just, I love the show. It's a classic for yeah. any public sector junkie. So I, I bet. Uh, Leo McGarry, yeah. a great character, and is the chief of staff of the president. How 
are you like Leo McGarry? Is your daily life like Leo McGarry's or how similar or different is it? What's the deal? Well, I think Leo McGarry is a man of great integrity and does the job <laughs> incredibly well. So I don't, I aspire to be Leo McGarry. I'm not sure if I'm quite there yet with uh, 13 or 14 months under my belt. Okay. Um, but really the function is what is seen in that show. I, mean, I think there's two main functions when you're chief of staff. The first is to advise the mayor and decisions he's about to make. And then when he makes them, it's your job to carry them out uh, with, with, uh, with with great uh, speed and, and efficiency. Um, and then third, I think, also is just care care of the mayor, making sure that the mayor is, is, is mentally sound, is thinking through things the right way, and to push back when necessary. Uh, Leo does that extraordinarily well. He and, uh, and Martin Sheen's character, President Bartlett, and that uh, have a very good rapport. The mayor and I um, actually didn't even know each other up until... Uh, literally two or three weeks before we started. Mm. Um, so I know in the show, for example, Leo and President Bartlett are friends from old old campaigns and haunts. Uh, so we it took us time to build that relationship. We hit it off very well, but I think at this point we have a very good rapport and we have the trust that I think is necessary for the, the type of role that I'm in. You just talk about the typical day. Like I think of the typical day in the West Wing is <laughs> the president wakes up in the morning yeah. and he's got an agenda for the day and meetings yeah. and he's got... Uh, He's got it all set up, and I would say 50% of the days, at least in the show, it blow, completely blows up and it yeah. restarts. Is that the life? Of, is that your life as well? Or? So balancing the proactive and reactive is the biggest challenge of the job, hands down. Um, I think you know, you're never going to make it more than 50-50 proactive, reactive, just by virtue of what happens in a given day. But uh, the most important thing for us was to set up a system very early on so that we felt comfortable with uh, making sure that we had the proactive top of mind. So every morning at quarter of seven, the mayor and I have a phone call. By then, we were, both of us are expected to have read uh, all the papers and all the news about the administration and about decisions to be made in the city of Boston, uh, talk about our plan for the day. Then I have a meeting at 8.30 a.m. every morning with our head lawyer, um, our chief of policy, and our chief financial officer talking about that plan. Uh, that's at 8.30, lasts for about 45 minutes. Uh, usually by 10.30, that plan is somewhat out the window, mm -hmm. uh, but we do our best to, to try to expedite it as much as possible. Uh, Mayor and I are in and out of each other's offices throughout the day. Usually by 10 p.m., we'll have a little wrap-up call, and then uh, it'll start over the next day. Interesting. Talk about the snow. I mean, Boston's just had this ridiculous <laughs> run of snowstorms. Uh, it's absolutely exhausting for me as a resident. What's that like it, as the mayor? He's sort of managing. I see him on TV. I see you on TV. Just what what's a storm like? It's it, it you know it's been a very trying time in the city of Boston. We've had now we're nine inches away from the most snow ever recorded in the Boston's history, which is pretty remarkable. Um, probably more uh, more relevant and why it's been such an issue is because if you look at the graph from 94, 90, 95, I think which is the last time, which is the most snow on record. That was a very gradual buildup, so there was time in between for us to clean up. This has been the most in this period of time in history. Mm. Uh, that means that we have to take the limited resources we have and try to deploy them as efficiently as possible while making sure the entire city is passable, but not necessarily doing all the things that one would be able to do with a smaller storm with smaller magnitude. So for example, uh, South, Bo South Boston right now has a lot of streets that are relatively narrow that are usually two-way streets. We launched a new program a couple days ago where we're making a lot of those one-way streets. Uh, just making it a lot easier for people to get around. People were previously literally playing chicken, going down the road, trying to figure out who's passing where. Um, it's just getting creative. It's just the reality of Mother Nature. We can't control it. We just got to do our best to work with the cards we're dealt. What, do you, what have you learned about crisis management? Um, you have a lot more crises in your office than we do. I try to be 
I don't know, at CEO of HubSpot, I try to be as proactive as possible, and I'm not very reactive. I don't react, I don't jerk the steering wheel on news coming in, per yeah, se. Yeah. I rarely blow up my schedule. <laughs> uh, most people listening to the show are CEOs, C-level type people. Yeah. What, can, what can they learn about active versus reactive? What can they learn about PR and crisis management? Um, we don't have a lot of crises here at HubSpot, but you have a lot. What can we learn? No, I, I mean, I think what, what I've realized, and this is in my role, but especially with the mayor's role, is that people want to hear from their leader. They just do. Um, and I think leaders especially sometimes undervalue that because whether it be humility, whether it be just in the pace of the day, they forget about their context of what how much influence they have as leaders. Ariana, in her leadership, people all looked up to her. Whatever she said, people followed that edict, right? Uh, and I think in the case of the mayor and how that translates, the reason why the mayor has been on TV so much is because he feels and people around him feel it's really important that during a time of crisis, they see him, they understand where he's coming from, and that they can ask him questions. Uh, I think that's very, very important. So I think the number one thing is just make sure that whoever the leader is in the organization understands the influence that they really have, that people really do look up to them, want to follow their edict, and want to make sure that they are in line with whatever the leader is putting forward. Got it. Got it. Very interesting, actually. So you've, we had a huge crisis here in Boston a year ago, obviously, with the marathon. Right. Um, previous mayor did a fantastic job, I thought, yeah. you know, handling that. Um, uh, and he, he knew that too. I mean, he was literally in a hospital bed when those bombs went off. Oh, interesting. And yeah. uh, and he was no, in no condition to be at a press conference, but he felt and he was adept enough to understand, especially after 20 years, that he needed to be out there. So if you see the press conference and you look now, it's Governor Patrick and you see uh, Mayor Menino in a wheelchair, but there. Yeah. Um, and I think it was really, he felt it was really, really important that he be out there and people understand that he's there and he's he's ready to govern. Got it. Oh, that's very interesting. Um, talk about the upcoming, what are you going to do for the marathon? It's a tricky, that's going to be a tricky, I don't know if you call it a celebration or, what, yeah. you know, a remembrance of it. Right. Uh you could really easily screw that up. How are you guys thinking about that? <laughs> well, so we, we had the one-year anniversary last year was a tremendous um, series of events. We had a remembrance at the Heinz Convention Center. Uh, Vice President Biden spoke, um, and, uh, and it was a really great remembrance. I think the question becomes, oh, and then we had the actual marathon, of course, which was a beautiful event. Uh, yeah. I think everyone will tell you that it couldn't have gone any better. It was a 75-degree day. It was perfect. I think the biggest challenge now is to think about going forward, what's a best way to memorialize what happened, respect the, the what had happened, while also making sure that the marathon continues to go as well as it possibly can. So we're currently very much listening to what the families want to do um, and, and talk about how we memorialize it so that every year we do remember what happened, but also make sure that we put on a world-class event that people uh, are, are going to and, and, and enthusiastic about every year. You just talked about, so the mayor's obviously going to want to be involved with that. How involved is he? How much delegation is there? How does he check in to make sure it's going the right way? What's the balance here? He's got this big, far-flung, strange organization, essentially. Yeah, I mean, so the city of Boston is a $2.7 billion budget uh, operating $2 billion roughly capital um, and with 18,000 employees. So he could get in the weeds a lot if he wanted to and get lost in those weeds. So I think it's my job to make sure that whatever time he's allocating uh, is time well spent uh, and important for both the high level, but also what I like to call the small ball. So the small ball is 
um, you know, making sure to write handwritten thank you notes to people, calling certain CEOs and saying, how are we doing? Uh, you know, calling, and not even CEOs, calling regular residents and, and doing that. If somebody, um, you know, goes above and beyond in the mayor's call center for the last 24 hours, was there taking calls, that he calls them and just thanks them. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important for someone who's a leader to balance that because you do want to make sure that obviously the large, influential, powerful people in the city uh, feel like their voices are being heard, but it's just equally important to make sure that the people who are working for you or the people who are residents of the city don't feel like you're, you're ignoring them or don't feel like you're, you're marginalizing them in favor of something else. Okay, he had a tricky, had a tricky thing here because he's replacing a, a beloved mayor right. uh, <laughs> who's, uh, God rest his soul, has recently passed. Yeah. What can we all learn as leaders about replacing another great leader? Uh, you know, what, yeah, what has he learned about that? What can we all learn about replacing somebody else? Well, I think the biggest thing is that there's always skepticism when a new leader comes in, whether the old leader was popular or not. Yeah. And I think the strategy that we tried to have is that the mayor to get out there and be as proactive with meeting with people as possible. Um, you know, a, a person you know very well, Niraj Shah and Steve Conine from, from Wayfair, um, were the kind of people who we knew were a company that we wanted to make sure knew that we cared about them and wanted them to stay in Boston and introduce ourselves with no agenda. Uh, so we, uh, I actually tweeted at them like one week in, just said the mayor wants to come in and just meet with you. There was zero agenda. You know, they, they weren't thinking about you know, moving. The mayor wasn't trying to convince them of something. It was just a hello. Uh, and the mayor did that over and over and over again early on. And I think not just for the powerful uh, you know, business people, but really just getting out in the communities every single day uh, and, and, and introducing himself literally to the voters. I mean, let's be honest, there was a th- 5% margin, a 3% margin between him and his opponent in the, in the election. So this was not a landslide victory. It was really important for him to get out there, both for people who supported him and those who didn't, to get to know him and understand that this isn't something that he's going to play politics with. He's now the mayor of everybody, and he needs to make sure to uh, to project that image to to all corners of the city. Okay, let's, let's just take another like real-world example. you got Microsoft. Yeah. We yeah. had Balmers in there for years, yeah. and then he's replaced recently by this new guy. Yeah. As far as I can tell, the new guy's basically following the same playbook with a couple of tweaks. Mm-hmm. You've got your boss, the mayor, coming and replacing this longtime beloved mayor. What's your strategy? Is it is it the Microsoft strategy? You make a couple tweaks, or do you want to take some some big departures from what the other guy did to show you're different. How do you think about that? Well, so what's interesting... Do you think about that? Did you you guys consciously talk about what Menino did and how we're going to be different or should we be the same? All the time, all the way down to what office I sat in versus the previous chief of staff. Um, You know, because you've got 18,000 employees, you know, roughly 17,500 of them are union. Um, So if you're thinking about the, literally the 300 or 200 that you really have control over the hiring and firing... Um, thinking about who you bring in and how you how that person can affect change in the larger culture is critical. So that's a conversation that we still have every single day. Uh, we've the cabinet has turned over almost entirely at this point. There's a few people from the new administration who are fantastic that we've held on to who are still doing a great job. But the human capital part of it is obviously the most important in terms of thinking about priorities. The mayor certainly has his priorities that are separate from Mayor Menino's, but the kind of menu of issues on his plate aren't that different. So I think it's really thinking about how we gather feedback, how we gather input, um, and how we make that uh, most effective. You know, people talk about the new Microsoft CEO abandoning the Windows first mentality, which was something that the employees really loved, Mm -hmm. right? And so I think what the mayor is trying to do is meet with the people who have worked 
forever in City Hall, understand what issues that were really pain points for them and how do we readjust to make it the best it possibly can be. Okay, interesting. Talk to me a little bit about hiring. So he, you're an interesting, I thought you were a very interesting hire. I think I first came across you when I saw the mayor tweeted your background and I was like, oh, that's interesting. Young guy in his 20s, obviously very bright, not a lot of experience, let's face it. Yep. Is that his mode? He, he's the John F. Kennedy mode of I don't want a lot of experience here. I want to hire young, smart people who are going to not necessarily follow conventional wisdom, but maybe rethink it. My, my, my favorite Kennedy story is when he was, the, the McNamara was the CEO or the president of Ford Motor Company, really yeah. liked McNamara. Yeah. And he went, or he had Bobby Kennedy go and talk to McNamara, and he said he offered McNamara the, uh, he offered McNamara the, the, the secretary of the treasury job. Yeah. McNamara says, I don't know anything about that. You know, I'm president of Ford Motor Company, I used to be a professor at Harvard, no way. And then a week later, he came back to him, he said, and he offered him the, uh, the Secretary of Defense job. And McNamara said, I don't know anything about that. I was in the military, but I, I don't know anything about that. And then President Kennedy said something very interesting to him. He says, you know, there's no university for presidents of the United States either. You learn on the job. Is Menino, is that Menino's MO? Or, sorry, is that uh, Walsh. Walsh's MO? Or are they all like you? Or is he, is he? I think it's a combination. He definitely skews towards the, the, the JFK mindset. I think he really believes in people who are hungry, who are young, who aren't jaded by people saying no all the time and wanting to make sure that those people, that the, the energy that comes from typically those kind of people are injected throughout his administration. I think people stereotype the mayor as being this, you know, union hack, this guy who really, you know, didn't care about technology and the establish and, and was very establishment. So I think it really surprised people when he appointed me. Our, our chief of environment and energy is my age as well. He's a classmate who I respected deeply, who was working in a lot of new environment-based startups in San Francisco. We stole him and he came back to Boston. Uh, that's very much his mentality. Having said that, he still also has people who he trusts, who he's known for a very long time, like Joyce Linehan, our chief of policy, who works closely with me, so that there are certainly blind spots that come with someone of my age and with my experience. And as long as you have that counterpoint, I think uh, he's very much uh, in line with that vision. Interesting. Um, Ariana Huffington. Yeah. Um, she just seems a world apart from, from our current Mayor uh, yeah. Walsh. Uh, they both have strong accents. Mayor yeah. Walsh got a strong Boston accent. Ariana's got whatever the heck that accent is that she's got. Talk to me about their different styles. Uh, talk to me about being chief of staff for Ariana versus Mayor Walsh. So Ariana, the story with that is uh, she's actually, on, on the element of experience, um, very much along the same line. I was working for Mayor Menino. I'd always wanted to work in media. It was kind of the one area that I had worked in sports as well, but I had wanted to work in media. Um, and so I applied. Um, and uh, she called me in, and she, she, she won't penalize me for doing the invitation because she nice. enjoys it, but she'll be like... You know, Dan, I just love the things that you're doing. It'd be great at the Huffington Post. You should come. It would be great if you could work for us. So, Fantastic. Um, you know, it was really it was really amazing. She gave me an opportunity. She took a huge chance on me. I, I had no media experience, but she liked the way that I had had operations experience in the past, brought me in, uh, and basically served the same role that I do with the mayor. Um, big decisions that she was making. It was my responsibility to do some research, let her know, and if, if, if she makes a decision to carry it out. Um, she, she and the mayor are actually very similar leaders in the sense that 
They both want things done as soon as possible and want an explanation if it doesn't happen that way. Uh, Ariana is a perfectionist, somebody who cares, but, but it comes from passion. She just cares so deeply about the work that she's doing. And she really cares about HuffPost as a social enterprise more than anything else. And she's told me all the time, she'll tell investors that she cares more about the impact it's making in the world than the profit and bottom line. Uh, so it was really an amazing experience to learn from her, the way that she balanced the hard driving aspects of business with the, the work-life balance that she advocates, and especially in her, in her new book, Thrive. Um, and she really does, she really does uh, subscribe to those. Uh, she, she would come in the office probably around 9, 9, 9.30. By then, she had already had you know, eight or nine hours of sleep and meditated for 45 minutes. Mm. You know, she really does subscribe to it. Uh, and it was really an interesting model that I wasn't expecting from a New York media um, elite you know, uh, to really balance that. She's not burning the candle at both ends. And I mean that in a good way. I mean that in a way that she makes sure that she shuts off at a certain hour and she doesn't expect her employees to be w- working till 2 a.m. Any- anyway. And if I do, she gets she would get upset. Hmm. And was she... All right, let me... So I've read Thrive and she spoke at the inbound conference we had a year ago. Oh, yeah, ago, I remember that. I'm a fan. I'm a, I'm a big... Na- I'm a napper. Uh, yeah. We have a nap room here at HubSpot. Oh, good. Some people... I've heard some people say about her, it's like, of course she's into work-life balance now and napping and meditation. She's filthy rich. She's got this huge company. She has a chief of staff for crying out loud. I'm trying to run this smaller business and grow it. Yeah. Do you think she was like that when she was an up and comer or is she working 16 hours a day like a lot of us here on this podcast? So, I mean, I think there's two elements of that question, right? I think there is, does she really believe in what she's saying? Um, And then... And then was she always that way? I think the latter question is no. She'll tell you that she worked herself way too hard. And she and actually she tells a story about how she literally collapsed one day, hit her head on the on the table and had to get stitches. And that was her wake up moment. I think she will tell you, though, that she would have been that she suffered as a result of that, that if she had practiced this work life balance earlier, she would be. She, she would have even more eff- efficacy at the certain point of HuffPost than it is now. That's not to say that it's not amazing now, but I think she would tell you that it actually was an impediment to success rather than uh, a success in general. That obviously always generates skepticism mm-hmm. um, from, from me and many other people in an organization, but she continues to prove it. Um, there are many times where we have a big project or something we need to do, and she wants to make sure that she's well-rested and that she has all the right eyes uh, dotted and T's crossed before she makes a big decision. Um, she very much advocates that we would have meditation and, and breathing classes in the middle of the day. Uh, and that would put off a, that would put off a meeting, but she felt it was really important. So All right, I, talk about that a little bit. Would she, <laughs> would she bring you into your office? Like, Oh, let's meditate a little bit. Let's do some breathing. She would literally walk outside and go breathing class, everybody. And how would it work? She would gather everybody. And, up and, and like literally it's Ariana Huffington. So everyone would just right. like follow her into sure. a room. And for 45 minutes, we'd be in a room doing breathing. That's exercises. actually a long time. It's a long time. Yeah. But she, but she will tell you that it's not enough time. Got she it. will tell you that you know, people burn the candle at both ends in a given day. You can take out some time to center yourself, especially when you're making a huge decision that you should take time to yourself and feel emotionally stable in order to make those decisions. Okay. I'm a, personally a big meditator. Good. And I was a meditator before I heard of her, and I've kind of more into it. She's kind of gotten more into it. <laughs> yeah. Are you, has it stuck with you? Have you brought it to the state house? It's, it's, not, as much as, city hall? it's not as much as I would like. Um, I still do take some time to just kind of chill out and just no, no sound yeah. and just do it. It's really important. Um, we're trying to figure out a way 
that's not a use of taxpayer money because it would be controversial to do meditation classes in City Hall. Um, of course, naturally speaking, there will be criticism saying, why are they doing literally sitting there not doing anything? Yep. Literally sitting there not doing... Harold already thinks we're sitting there not doing it. I'm just right. kidding. Sure. I love Joe Shock and the Harold, but you know, people will criticize it. So there's always that concern, but I think that one could make a very compelling argument, and, and the science backs it up now, uh, that having a little bit of time to just stop and just think is really, really important for any leader. It doesn't matter if they're in the public, private, or nonprofit yep. sector. Tell me about Ariana's day and how did she prioritize stuff? How did she handle crises? Like, walk me through, you know, what's her typical day look like? She's unbelievably successful. What can we learn from her? So Ariana was, and this is something that I've seen as one of maybe the biggest commonality I've seen in every effective leader okay. I've had the chance to work for. Incredibly responsive, freakishly responsive. So in the, in the time that she's awake and not meditating, she would respond to my emails within two or three minutes, nice. max. And if there was, and if not, there was something wrong, or she was on a plane and the person who booked the flight forgot to put, make sure Wi-Fi was on. Right. Um, that that was the only way she was able to really lead in an efficient way because of the inbound of all the emails that she was getting. Yeah. Um, so we would typically have a very. It was a little bit of a different um, arrangement. I would email her a list of things that we had talked about, plan for the day. She would give me feedback. We'd have a few phone conversations. You know maybe 50 to 70% of the time she was in the office, the rest of the time she was traveling around the world. So she really trusted the people who worked under her to make sure that things that she wanted to get done were getting done um, and would provide constant feedback, good or bad, uh, about what I was doing or what anyone else was doing. And that's not everyone's style. Some yeah. people can't take that. And, and it took an adjustment for me, to be honest, too, because if I did a bad job in a project, she would tell me that. Yeah. She would not... She, you know, she would then say, but I believe in you, but she would not be afraid to be honest with me about feedback. And she'd do the same thing with me. If, if I felt that she wasn't being fair, she would welcome me saying that. Okay. You know? Got it. Interesting. Uh, fascinating character. Two fascinating characters. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, on your Twitter profile, you say you're the chief of staff of the greatest city in the world. Yeah. I happen to agree with you. <laughs> Uh, what should people know about Boston that don't know about Boston or listening on this podcast? Well, I think, you know, I think HubSpot has really highlighted this, but I think when a lot of people think of Boston and I think what, what's exciting about what the mayor's office is doing here, they should think about the region of Boston and what's happening here, right? There are, there are legacy institutions here, the academic institutions, you're not going to find better ones in the entire world. Uh, healthcare, the same thing. Um, well, what people are realizing now, slowly but surely, thanks to HubSpot and others, is that the, the, the tech startup scene here is amazing. There's a culture here that we're just starting to really generate momentum behind uh, around, around uh, tech startups, entrepreneurship, and getting people involved, not just in what, what is typically the startup scene in Boston, the biotechs, and et cetera, but the technology startups are so exciting. Not to mention the fact that you can't find better sports town in the entire yeah. world. Uh, you know, I'm sure you'll bring up Olympics at some point, but uh, we're really, really excited to be the U.S. finalist city for the Olympic bid in 2024. We beat out D.C., San Francisco, and Los Angeles for that. Um, and it, it's one of those things where we're a combination of the old and the new, uh, both the, the legacy organizations and the tech startup scene that you would find in New York and San Francisco. But we're also a livable city. There's, 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 there's you know, miles and miles of greenway. We have the number one park system in the world. We're the number one most green uh, city in the world as well. Um, and everything that you'd want in a big city is here in a very livable way in Boston. I think that's what makes us so special. I agree. The restaurants are good. It's safe. Yeah, exactly. Uh, great sports town. Restaurants uh, are incredibly underrated. Great universities. I agree with that. 
Um, it's been great having you. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been great. Thank you, uh, Thank you for listening to this episode of The Growth Show. You can learn more at HubSpot.com slash podcast and find all the previous episodes on iTunes. Uh, just search for The Growth Show. Should we put the headphones on? or? Makes it kind of official. All right. Makes this look official. Oh, that's much better, actually. Yeah, yeah way better.